As we prepare to turn our eyes to our great God and study his word through the preaching of his word, we want to just take a moment uh, to pray for Israel and for the innocent harmed in Gaza during this time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn our eyes to you. We turn them to you because you are all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator God who loves us with an everlasting love. And Lord, we come before your mercy seat available to us because of Christ. And we pray for Israel. We pray for the swift defeat of Hamas and just the devastating operations they're conducting against the innocent citizens in Israel. And we pray for the safety of all Palestinian innocent as well and just an end of the violence. We pray for your churches in the surrounding area to be instruments of your mercy, providing food and tangible aid, and most of all, providing the hope of your gospel through their words and deeds. Father, just grow and equip your church that lives inside the borders of both Israel and Palestine. For Christians here in America, and for Lighthouse in particular, Father, we just we pray you would help us to show your compassion and wisdom in being a strong witness for Christ in love and humility. Father, we do not forget the story of grace you have told us through the nation of Israel in your word. And we pray that you would give our church wisdom to know what we can do to make the grace of your gospel known during this time. We pray this for the glory of your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Lighthouse. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Tim. Well, my name isn't Pastor, but you know, I'm a pastor here at Lighthouse. My name is Pastor. I'm Tim St. John. I'm a pastor here for counseling. Um, it's a joy to speak with you and to continue our series in Galatians. I hope you're enjoying it. If you want, you can take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. As we've been going through Galatians, it's been convicting for me to consider just the different gospels that I preach to myself that tell me that I can find my life in someone or something other than Christ. Hopefully that's been convicting for you as you've been studying Galatians as well. Galatians is this urgent call Paul gives us to the purity and the simplicity of the gospel of grace. Right, this letter of Paul it, he, that he writes, it doesn't start off slowly with lots of like polite niceties. It's not subtle. He goes straight to the heart, to his main point of the letter, and he just stays on that main point for the whole letter. And this is the point, that the true gospel proclaims salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If anything gets added to the gospel, if anything gets added to our salvation, even just a little of man's works, just one work, then it's a false gospel. And it will lead to slavery rather than freedom, hell rather than heaven, death rather than life, because it will exalt man rather than God. Yet exalting man is our heart's favorite activity. And that's why I'm honored to get to preach on the danger of fear of man this morning. Right? Fear of man is a story of grace being forgotten. Right? This, the longing for works righteousness, the longing to feel justified in someone else's eyes. Right? We all know the, the parable of the prodigal son right? in Luke 15. Right? He comes back home, he receives his father's forgiveness, experiences the grace of acceptance. He has a feast, which is a, a symbol of salvation in the parable. And it was not on the basis of anything he has done, 
but only on the basis of his father's grace and mercy. Now imagine that that prodigal son wanted the approval of his older brother. You remember him in the parable? That's the brother that wanted to be accepted on the basis of works. He didn't need his father's mercy and grace. He had done enough. He was owed a feast. He was owed a celebration of his works. Imagine what that older brother might have said to his younger brother. You might have won the affection of our father. I'm not so easy. You need to prove yourself to receive my acceptance. Now, what if the younger brother said, I have, I have messed up. I have done so much wrong. I'll do anything. Just tell me what I need to do. I'll do anything. Is that love? That's fear of man. If the younger brother said, I'll do, uh, if, if he said though, brother, I know you're older than me, but you're a sinner in need of grace, just like me. And we have a merciful father who has invited you to this feast out of his mercy, not on the basis of your works. And he has open arms waiting to receive you just as he received me. Right? That would be love. In the gospel, we are prodigal sons coming to our merciful heavenly father with nothing in our hands, and he graciously receives us. But every day, our hearts and this world is the older brother telling us that it's not enough. Grace is not enough. I wonder where you hear that message. Grace is not enough. Like what relationships around you challenge the gospel of grace that constantly tell you to achieve more, to do more, to be more in order to receive love? Whether you perceive the relationships, they feel that way to you. In our study today, that is what we're going to put side by side. What is love in relationships and what is fear of man? What is a gospel of grace and what is a gospel of works? Our passage today in Galatians 2, 11 through 16 is a story that reveals the danger that fear of man poses to the gospel. How fear of man began to control the apostle Peter until even leaders like Barnabas were led astray. And how God used Paul to stand against this danger, to preserve the gospel, to protect the church, and to love his fellow apostles. So let me begin by reading our text. This is Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And in in those final words, you can just hear how much the purity of the gospel 
means to the Apostle Paul. That we would see salvation is completely about how we are justified by grace through faith alone, not works. This is what Paul wants to protect against the threat of the Judaizers. And in this story, that meant even protecting it from his own friends, these fellow apostles, leaders in the church that had been led astray by the fear of man. So today we're going to consider how the gospel of grace exposes and silences our fear of man so that as a church, we can live together, walking in step of the gospel, running toward Christ, defined by grace, helping us stay true to the gospel of grace. So to deal with fear of man, we need to begin by exposing the pressures that it subtly brings into our lives. So I'm going to start by just telling a story about the pressure that is really the backdrop to the letter of Galatians. And I think it'll help us understand the subtle ways the gospel is constantly under attack in our own lives. So under exposing fear of man, we're looking at the pressure that comes from people first. So in the first century, there were two primary groups of Jewish people opposing the gospel. Two primary groups. One group violently attacked anyone who claimed to be a disciple of Christ. So Paul, formerly Saul, he was part of that group, that violent persecutors. Remember, you remember how they killed Stephen in Acts 7? Right, right before they killed him, in, at the end of Acts 6, they list the charges against Stephen, and it was that he was speaking against the law and that he wanted to change the customs that Moses had passed down. That's what made him dangerous in their eyes. So this group gets angry and stones him. And that is really the first in a, the beginning of a violent campaign that that group had to persecute the early church in Jerusalem. That's one group of Jews, the Jewish group that opposed the gospel. The second group is the Judaizers. And they opposed the gospel subtly. They did it by embracing Christ partially. They called themselves Christians, but they demanded that Jewish laws, particularly circumcision, be required for salvation, right? Acts 15 verse 1 summarizes their stance, which says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, right? Adding works to the gospel. Now, neither the violent persecutors or the Judaizers, the circumcision party over here, would have said their purpose was to oppose the gospel primarily. They would have seen it as protecting tradition, culture, heritage, national identity. In the musical, The Fiddler on the Roof, uh, the star of the show, Tevye, summarizes this desire to protect Jewish tradition. Early in the musical, Tevye says, because of our traditions, Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And that's what the Judaizers felt they were fighting for, their individual and national identity, the knowledge of who they are and what God expects them to do. I think an Old Testament passage that captures this well is Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is, is a lament written during the Babylonian captivity of Israel. And you don't have to turn there, but verses five and six say this. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now that Psalm is a lament amid suffering, but I think it captures what the Judaizers felt responsible for. They felt they were fighting for Jerusalem, their highest joy. 
And in this first century period, the Jews are in the midst of another captivity, right? They're ruled by the Romans. And they so badly want to be free. Or you remember, that's what gave them that wrong view of Christ during his ministry, that they thought Jesus was going to free them from Roman oppression and reestablish them as a nation. And that brings us to Peter. What did the Judaizers think about Peter's ministry? In Peter's first sermon in Jerusalem in Acts 2, Peter declared that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone, right? Admitting yourself to be a sinner and believing in Christ's death and resurrection for salvation. It was not through the works of the law, right? Christ came to fulfill the law, right? All the law was meant to do was show us how we fall short and look to God for grace. The law provided the context for us to see God's holiness our sin, and then to come back to him again and again for grace upon grace. And then Christ comes, lives a perfect life, and fulfills all righteousness, and dies for us, taking the punishment for all of our sins. And in that, we understand all the sacrifices of the law pointed to Christ's sacrifices, of his sacrifice. All the ceremonies of the law were to point to his holiness. These were the shadows Christ is the substance. That is why Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for, to everyone who believes. But just in case there's still confusion, in Acts 10, God gives Peter a vision of all these unclean animals and tells Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter wisely begins proclaiming to the church that this is a call to accept Gentile hospitality, to spend time with them, to eat with them, to remove any obstacle to the gospel, and to never call any person, no matter who they are, common or unclean. So this vision makes it explicit that Christ has fulfilled everything, that nothing else needs to be done. But for the Judaizers, to say nothing else needs to be done is taking a giant eraser to their national identity, to practices that had been meticulously passed down within families for thousands of years. So these Judaizers travel 300 miles from Jerusalem up to Antioch, carrying what seems to be the authority of James, the brother of Jesus, and they have a talk with Peter. So I'm going to share with you, given this historical context, what I think they would have said to Peter. Now, this is not, like, I don't have my own secret Bible somewhere telling me things you don't know. This is what I think they would have said to persuade the apostle Peter. Peter, is being Jewish nothing? Is Jerusalem nothing? After everything our people endured to preserve our traditions, will you wipe them out? Have you really considered what you're doing? Thousands of Jews thinking nothing of Torah, thinking nothing of traditions, thinking that being a Jew is nothing. We have suffered so much, Peter. In this city of Antioch alone, just 10 years ago, Emperor Caligula burned our synagogues and massacred our people. And Peter, here you are in Antioch, burning down our traditions that define us as a nation. Do you not care how we have suffered as a people? Have you stopped to think of how your message is harming the Christian Jews 300 miles away in Jerusalem? What do you think happens when a Jewish young man or young woman trusts in Christ and then follows your teaching to not practice Jewish traditions? 
Right? They immediately have a target on their back. They stand out like a sore thumb. They are disowned by their family and their friends. They live in fear of being attacked by Jewish leaders in addition to fearing persecution from Rome. Peter, on how many fronts do we need to fight a war? On how many fronts does the church need to suffer persecution? Our people are suffering needlessly because of your teaching. And if they know that their heart belongs to Christ, can they just give their hearts to him and quietly live within their traditions, the very traditions that Christ himself practiced? And finally, Peter, you are operating outside of your commission. Isn't your call to the Jews? Paul and Barnabas were sent to the Gentiles. Remember where you came from. Remember who you are. Remember your calling. Now, I'm just imagining that that's how they would have reasoned with him, but I'm sure the pressure was much, much greater than what I'm describing. And I'm sure if I was in his shoes, I would have bent under the pressure. I would have thought, what am I doing? Have I forgotten where I came from? Am I so hastily ending so much that has been preserved? I need to slow down. I need to really consider this. What would you have done in Peter's shoes? How would you have answered that type of challenge? Would you have had the boldness to say to them, brothers, the law with its sacrifices and ceremonies was a shadow. Christ is the substance. And we must not add to him the moment we add anything. It is no longer a salvation by grace. So I think many times in this life, we feel like we only have two options. Do I want to be a doormat or a jerk? Right? Do, I, do I want to stand up or sit down? Do I want to live to please people or please myself? Those can feel like our two options, our two only options. But this is a false dichotomy because it leaves out God. God is in the room, in every room, even in this room and in the room after this and in the room after that, God is in the room with you. And when I live before his eyes, which are filled with grace, then I'm able to ask the most important question around any decision. How can I magnify the grace of God? But you only get to ask that question when God is the most important person in the room when you are aware of him. Without that, then we go back to those two terrible choices. We all have a story of subtle pressure pulling us away from the purity of the gospel of grace because God was not the most important in the person in the room. So we centered on ourselves or on someone else. Think about all the different rooms you walk through during the week. This past week, all the different rooms, office rooms, classrooms, bedrooms, living rooms. When God is no longer the most important person in the room, what happens? Life can feel so complicated, right? So many things you need to do, so many things to check off. We can feel the weight and stress of it all so much. Right? There's this crushing weight of needing to be enough, either for ourselves or for other people. 
but there is a great evil purpose in that pressure you feel. It is not mainly to crush you. It is mainly on you to crush the gospel of grace, the gospel witness that lives in you because of Christ. Who do you need to be enough for? Right, your life is a story of grace, not works. <laughs> we just sang that, right? We, our life is a story of grace upon grace upon grace until we are finally with our Lord by grace. But we can go from room to room thinking our life is a story of works, of being enough for someone else or for ourselves. So what is a greater concern for you? displaying God's grace or displaying what you can achieve, your work. You know, since being at Lighthouse, I've had the joy of, of performing several weddings, actually a good number of weddings. And one of my, the, just the greatest moments I've witnessed in these ceremonies is when spouses look into each other's eyes and vow to never live for their spouse's approval. <laughs> they'll, say, they'll say things like this, I promise never to look to you for joy. I'll never look to you for hope, for peace, because all of that has been given to me in Christ. Christ is my life, and I vow to never make you my life. So I marry you because you help me run toward Christ, who is my life, not because you will satisfy my soul. What a witness that is. It just brings so much gospel clarity. And if there is a place where a fear of man can reign, it is in dating, engagement, and marriage, right? Happy wife, happy life, or, or happy spouse, happy house, right? Those ideas are 100% about fear of man. Only when we fix our eyes on Christ fully will we know how to bring his love to our spouses and friends rather than bringing the pressure of our idolatry. Your spouse, your friendships, your coworkers, your boss, their happiness should have nothing to do with your peace and joy in this life. Like I wanna say, saved in Christ, happy life. Right? Because every one of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ has a happiness that is drawn entirely from grace. It has nothing to do with your work or what you can achieve or who approves of you in this world. Where are you trying to prove yourself? Who are you trying to prove yourself to? Can you see how these pressures are not only creating stress and anxiety and fear in your life, but they exist to crush the gospel of grace from going forth in your life? Please talk with your church family about the pressures you feel, the things that pull you toward a gospel of works, the pressures in your heart and life that, that pull you away from the purity and the simplicity of the gospel of grace. After doing an inventory of the pressures that pull you from the gospel, the second step in understanding fear of man is to see how it corrupts. When we give in to those pressures, how, what happens in our hearts? How does it corrupt? So look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that Peter was fearing the circumcision party. So I just want to take a moment and explain what that means, what was happening in Peter's heart. The language of fear is the language of worship. When I say I fear God, it means I'm worshiping God. If I fear man, I'm worshiping man. 
When I say I fear someone, it means I'm living before the gaze of someone whose opinion of me, whose view of me determines how I see myself and how I live. Fear of man is specifically about how our worshiping hearts have replaced God with people. Rather than living before the face of God, right, the, the Latin phrase for that is quorum Deo, quorum Deo, the before the face of God. Rather than living before the face of God, we live before the face of particular people whose opinion and acceptance seem vital to our lives. So we live quorum spouse or quorum kids or quorum pastor or quorum boss or quorum mother-in-law, right? We live before the face and under the gaze of someone whose view of us is where we derive our sense of self, our purpose, our identity. Fear of man is living highly aware of how others view you and valuing their opinion above God's. John Bloom, writing for Desiring God, says this, the person whose reward of approval we desire most whose curse of disapproval we fear to receive is the person we will obey, our functional God. That's why the Bible so often commands us to fear the Lord. So for Peter, the pressure from the Judaizers was significant, that he wanted to live in a way to receive their blessing, even though it meant turning away from Christ. And I love, I love Peter I mean, he has grown so much. I'm so thankful for his example. But his flesh is still with him here as an apostle. He is still the same man who was walking toward Christ on the water and in fear fell underneath the waves. He's the same man who said to Christ, even if everyone falls away, I'll never deny you. And that same night denied him three times saying, I never knew the man. What makes... Peter, what makes Christians vulnerable to fear of man like this? I believe that one of the primary ways we are vulnerable is that we are called to love, which means we must be aware of those around us. Right? We must consider others' interests. We must count others as more significant than ourselves. If we are to love like Christ, that starts with being aware of others. So if you'd say, you know, Pastor Tim, I'm, I'm so glad you're giving this sermon on fear of man. I'm sure it's going to help other people, but I really, I haven't struggled with fear of man in years. Well, I just want to ask you, how aware are you of those around you? And how are you considering them above yourself? Because I honestly think I could say, if you don't struggle with fear of man at all, not even a little bit, then you're likely harming many relationships through your selfishness because you have to be aware of others in order to love them with wisdom. If you're going to pray for them with compassion, if you're going to gently build them up in love, if you're going to carefully remove a speck from their eye, right, the challenge for us Christians is to not let our awareness of others weigh more than our awareness of God. He has to be the most important person in the room. And when it comes to love, these two things, awareness of others and awareness of God, they're not competitive. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. Your awareness of God and his grace and his presence with you equips you to love the person right in front of you. It helps. It doesn't hinder. But when your awareness of someone else weighs more than your awareness of God, then he has been replaced. And it will actually be impossible for you to love them like Christ. Because now their approval, 
their affection, their admiration will be your source of peace and rest. You'll no longer draw that from the grace of the gospel. You'll work to earn that from others. So to help clarify this subtle danger, like fear of man that every Christian faces, I want to just put side by side the love of Christ and fear of man so you can see some similarities, but also some stark differences. So I made a chart for you. All right. (laughs) You don't have to, I mean, you can take a picture or something of it if you want, but it'll be in your small group notes, I think, this week also. But there is a purpose that is different. Right? The purpose in the love of Christ is to pursue the greatest good of others, their growth in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of fear of man is to earn righteousness in the eyes of others by working to fulfill their law, right? their expectations. In the actions, on the surface, it might look similar, but the heart is different. Just consider these actions. The love of Christ sacrifices to show others Christ. Fear of man makes sacrifices to gain the approval of others. The love of Christ moves toward others with humility, confident in God's grace. Fear of man moves toward others with fear, seeking their approval. The love of Christ asks questions, builds understanding, and prays for them. The fear of man doesn't seek a deeper understanding because they're mainly focused on how to work hard to live up to those expectations. The the love of Christ stands up against demands and expectations that turn a relationship away from seeking Christ in his kingdom. The fear of man accepts any demand or expectation as an opportunity to earn approval or righteousness in someone else's eyes. And you can read the rest of them later and you can probably add to this list. But where is fear of man for you corrupting your ability to love like Christ? Do you have a heightened awareness of how you are perceived by others online or by your classmates or by your coworkers, your parents? Whose affection and appreciation do you need to feel whole? Whose smile kind of relieves your anxiety, lets you feel peace? Fear of man is a kingdom of works righteousness not grace. It is a kingdom of anxiety, not peace. Right? It is slavery, not freedom. And Paul understands this because that was his kingdom. He grew up in this kingdom, and he had, got, he had achieved the righteousness of other people's approval through his hard work. He had done it all in man's eyes. He had risen to the highest ranks in Jewish society. And as we've seen in previous sermons, he counts it all as rubbish as garbage in Philippians 3. All that achievement, pleasing all those people, was garbage. Why? Bringing honor to those who invested so much in him was garbage? It's because his life was about drawing peace from people and not from the gospel, and that's why it was garbage. Perhaps you think the gospel of grace is just the ABCs of the Christian life. Right? It's beginner-level Christianity. And maturing in faith is primarily a story of what you can achieve in your morality or your knowledge, theology, and you have a law that you set for yourself that must be met. And maybe you look down on others who aren't meeting those standards. But the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A through Zs of the Christian life. The purity of the gospel of grace is vital to protect because it frames how we see our wealth, 
our sexuality, our jobs, our identity, right? The gospel tells us everything about who we are by telling us how God sees us. We never move away from our salvation of grace. We just plunge ever deeper into understanding our whole lives as a story of his grace so that as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 6, we might live to the praise of his glorious grace. That is why we exist. And the more of our story we understand through the lens of his grace, the more deeply we will worship him and praise his grace. So fear of man brings a pressure that pulls us away from living from God to live before man. And it corrupts the gospel because we look at ourselves and the different aspects of our lives in light of man's opinion rather than God's. Now let's consider the consequences. Verses 12 and 13 outline the result of this corruption, right? Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. He pulls away, separates himself. He draws a line, a boundary, and he draws it out of fear. So you see the two steps here? He, he pulls back and he separates himself. Right? It's not just a temporary, like he's stepping back to have a conversation with the Judaizers. No, he is separating himself. He's creating a barrier for fellowship and that barrier is circumcision. As soon as you begin to behold something other than Christ, as soon as something else becomes more central, it is a death sentence for discipleship, for love, for doctrine, Paul says in verse 14 that the conduct of Peter and Barnabas was not in step with the gospel. Right? I'm so glad that Pastor Francis led us in a prayer of confession of like where we are not living in step with the gospel because, because what's happening here is Paul and Peter and Barnabas hadn't started just believing a gospel of works. They, they had just started preaching a gospel of works with their lives. Please note this phrase Paul uses in verse 14, not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul is not saying Peter's no longer doctrinally sound, but that his life was not in step with sound doctrine. His walk is not a walk of grace. His life is no longer communicating a gospel of grace. And though he never preached it with his lips, he proclaimed a false gospel of works with his life. I think for a moment about the pressure you bring to your relationships, the, the preferences you express, the boundaries you draw, the disappointments you make known. Consider for a moment if those are walking in step with the gospel of grace. Do those things communicate a gospel of grace? Parents especially. If I could just talk to the parents in the room for a moment. Because our children are growing up in this church, they hear the gospel of grace on Sundays, but are they hearing a gospel of works from us during the week? What they need to do to receive our approval, to receive our smiles. Are we walking in step with the gospel of grace with our children? And when we fall short, when we push them to earn our love, do we repent? The result of the fear of man is that love, which Jesus says is the summary of the law, that love was destroyed. Christ was hidden, ministry stopped. So we need to consider where the love of Christ has disappeared from our lives. This is the very light of the gospel, 
we will be known by our love as Christians. So when we step back from people, when we express our preferences, when we create boundaries, when we communicate disappointment, is that in step with the gospel of grace? Because if it's not, we are preaching a deadly gospel. We are preaching works righteousness in our relationships to move people toward us so that they, they move toward us with great care, great reverence, wondering if they'll be received by us. In Galatians 2, we witness the devastating consequences of fear of man from leaders in the church, people who preached a gospel of grace. Love stopped, discipleship stopped, the grace of Christ was hidden, doctrinal confusion ran rampant, all because the apostle Peter stepped back. What could be the consequences of our fear of man on our relationships in our church? We need to understand these realities about fear of man. The pressure, the corruption, and the consequences. Lighthouse will no longer be a city on a hill shining the light of his grace, the light of our Lord's love. We will be those older brothers in the prodigal son story. We'll be known by our boundaries, our our busyness, our inward focus, our self-preoccupation, what we can achieve. And we, as we strive to be enough for ourselves or enough for our culture or enough for other people and hiding the beautiful grace of the gospel. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, the story closes by showing us how Paul silences fear of man. He first does it by boldly confronting this sin. Right? Paul, like all of us, had struggled with fear of man. He understands this fear right? because the lie of the Judaizers had ruled his life to the point that he committed murder for that fear. And not only did he understand this temptation that Peter and Barnabas faced, he had a deep affection for these brothers, especially, I would say, Barnabas. I mean, he had spent time with the apostle Peter as a fellow leader in the early church, but Barnabas... And Barnabas was the one who vouched for Paul's ministry when no one else wanted to receive him, right? Because he had been this terrorist. No one else wanted to believe in Paul. Barnabas believed in him. And Barnabas was the one who recruited Paul to go with him to, to preach to the Gentiles in Antioch. He believed in Paul. He supported Paul. He cared for Paul. As a side note, I think these two realities that, that Paul understands here, understanding the sin the struggle of the sin, and, and having a deep love for those he was about to confront. I think those two things are really essential before we try to step towards someone and confront sin. Just understanding the struggle well and being able to have a, a deep love for them should precede a rebuke. Now, there are so many ways Paul could have approached confronting this sin. Right? He could have said, brothers, how dare you hold back the, God, the love of God from these Gentile believers? Or how dare you value the opinions of these Judaizers above the opinion of our God? But he goes after the most clear, glaring aspect of their sin, the hypocrisy of it all. Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, Barnabas, and others had been enjoying so many Gentile freedoms, like eating meat, like bread, olive oil, whatever meat they wanted, even things that were ceremonially unclean. And now with their lives, they are saying, we are free to live how we want, but you have to live a certain way, go through circumcision to be one of us. 
This is how John Piper describes it. The behavior of Peter and Barnabas amounted to a new commandment to the Gentiles that they, might, they must virtually become Jews. So it's a new commandment for the Gentiles, but not for the Jews. Right? The Gentiles need to be circumcised, but Peter has already announced that the Jews are free to eat and drink with the Gentiles. So praise God for Paul's confrontation. And he leaves this example that if we are to silence fear of man, to stop it from corrupting the gospel, we need to be in each other's lives. Right? We need to be aware of the temptations we face, willing to say something to address those temptations. So let me ask you, like, when is the last time someone helped address a temptation in your life where you were tempted to live out of step with the gospel? If this is really something we all struggle with, who's helping us walk in step with the gospel? Do we build relationships of trust that we take moments to talk about how we are walking and if that walk communicates a gospel of grace? Now, I just wanna, on a side note, talk about rebuke for a second since it's happening in this passage. We typically would recommend when you rebuke someone to do one by one, one-on-one, face-to-face, not in like before a bunch of people like, like Paul does here. Because following Matthew 18, we rebuke someone caught in sin by going to them personally, privately first, talking with them about it. But what's happening here is there's a sin of a leader who's teaching a, to compromise the gospel and is leading others astray. That needed a public rebuke. So there are exceptions to that. There are times where you do need a public rebuke. But the most typical way confrontation happens is our intentional love that considers one another's hearts to see where the gospel could be threatened. So who does that for you? Who helps you walk in step with the gospel of grace? We need to care for each other in this way. We need to know the pressures that are coming into each other's lives, pulling us away from the gospel of grace. Finally, to silence the fear of man, we must not only expose the sin, but we need to boldly proclaim the gospel of grace. And Paul gives that to us in verse 16. I want to read this one more time. Galatians 2, 16. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word justified is used three times here. And you might be wondering, well, he doesn't say grace at all, but he does say not a result of works three times in that passage. He's defining grace with those words, not by works of the law. And he's clarifying this specifically because it was a temptation that Galatian, the Galatians were facing. In, in the golden chain of salvation given to us in Romans 8.30, justification is the moment when a person places their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin. When we truly believe that Christ did it all, that was everything necessary for our salvation, and we add nothing to it, we are justified. That's justification. Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, all those salvation verbs, predestined, called, justified, glorified, who is the subject of those verbs? God is the subject, right? Salvation is his work. And they're all in the past tense, which means redemption has been fully completed in Christ, my kids are memorizing 
Acts, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in the children's ministry right now. And I just love hearing them say the words, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. I just love hearing them say that around our home right now. Justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is about being declared guilty and justification is being declared righteous. Condemnation, you are in the wrong. Justification, you are in the right. And fear of man is a life of condemnation. Working and working to try to not feel condemned anymore, never succeeding. A life of never being enough. But in the gospel, praise God, Christ is enough. His grace is enough. We are justified in him by grace through faith. William Holland was a young man, part of this same holiness club at Oxford University in the 1700s with, with Charles Wesley. And, and they called themselves Methodists because of their strict discipline to wake up early and read their Bible and study theology books, just like a lot of our college students here at Lighthouse, right? They would meet all the time to read different theology books out loud together. And one evening, Charles Wesley was reading from the preface of the Galatians commentary by Martin Luther about how man can be saved through faith in Christ alone. And I just want to take a moment in closing now to read part of what Charles Wesley read to William Holland from Martin Luther's Galatian commentary preface. We must be careful to use the law appropriately. If we use the law in order to be accepted by God through obedience, then Christian righteousness becomes mixed up with earned moral righteousness in our minds. If we try to earn our righteousness by doing many good deeds, we actually do nothing. We neither please God through our works righteousness, nor do we honor the purpose for which the law was given. But if we first receive Christian righteousness, then we can use the law, not for our salvation, but for his honor and glory to lovingly show our gratitude. So then have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, Although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. And after hearing that, this is what William Holland wrote. There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love, I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our savior. My companions perceiving me so affected, 
fell on their knees and prayed. When afterwards I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod. And a few days later in May of 1738, Charles Wesley, continuing to meditate on that preface of Martin Luther's commentary of Galatians, he journaled this, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith alone, I stood. And two days later, Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, And Can It Be? I just want to read one verse of that hymn. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? May we never look away from the love of Christ to earn man's approval. May we never look away from grace to live by works. And may we live with an awareness of our great God so that we would be a church that walked together in step with the gospel of grace as we run toward our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gospel of grace, our justification by grace through faith alone in Christ that shatters all the pressure of works righteousness, of needing to be enough before anyone else's eyes. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Father, I pray that we would live before your gaze of grace, that we would seek your kingdom of grace, and that our walk would proclaim a gospel of grace before a watching world and to one another so that we would grow to speak about your gospel of grace to one another. For your glory's sake, in Christ we pray, amen.